We've got a lot of news to cover, by the way, but let's start with the sleaze because that seems to be the only thing that's going in the British press this morning. I go to my newsstand, and there's some big stories. By the way, world-changing stuff has happened, Mike, today and in the last 24 hours. And you wouldn't know it if you're looking at every single major daily newspaper in the UK. So we're going to hit those big stories in a minute, but let's get the sleaze out of the way first. Let's get our our mop and our bleach out and just let's deal with this first. There were eight major sex political sex scandals on all the different newspapers. I tweeted them out uh, this morning. You can see it on my Facebook page. Like, and I thought to myself, what's, is this the only thing that's going on in the world? What, what is this? There's like, uh, the, the, the mail had one, then the mirror had a different one, the telegraph had another one, the, the observer had one, the times had one. Um, I, the, <laughs> the award goes to Paul Dacker for the best line, which is a pound shop Weinstein. He was describing this, uh, Tory made a pass in his bathrobe to an aide, and the aide described it as a, a pound shop Weinstein pass that that great i love the language look this is this is extremely important because the way what are these stories that the mainstream media is pushing in these countries this is not sex scandal or sleaze you know the column the uk column uh, many others in the uk have been covering genuine sex scandals involving uh, politicians and others for many many years uh, there are many questions for the for members of the house of commons to answer uh, many cover-ups over the years, but what is in the press today is nothing to do with it. What have we got? We've got people touching knees. We've got people doing what? What are they doing? Nothing. Making passes at people. This is nothing. This is absolutely nothing, right? The biggest uh, name so far, aside from the fact that the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon resigned this week on the basis of having touched somebody's knee, uh, we've got Damien. Who, whose knee was that? But was Andrea Ledsom's knee? No, no, it was a journalist. But she put in a formal complaint, didn't can't, she? No, no. Well, she, she, no, not really. Ledsom didn't. Okay. No, no. In fact, Ledsom uh, uh, then came out and said, "Look, this, I, I didn't complain about this at all." So, oh, okay. The so, papers reported she did. Uh, well, the papers are talking nonsense. This is this wow. is staggering. The, the, Amazing. The, the one today, the big name is Damien Green. Now, who's Damien Green? He's first Secretary of State, uh, and the first Secretary of State is the key advisor to the Prime Minister on developing and implementing government policy. This is the head man in the cabinet office. This is wow. this is a big... And what what is it he's alleged to have done? Well, what's happened is that an ex-senior Met police officer has said that when they raided his uh, parliamentary office in 2008, they took his computer away and they discovered pornography on it. They haven't said what type of pornography it was. Uh, but I, I would say that porn on, on a work computer isn't the most well-advised thing to do, but many people are caught doing it in their business lives. Uh, and it's certainly not a, a sex scandal in the scale of the types of sex scandals that we're aware of uh, that, are, that have taken place in the, uh, or taken place with people associated with the Houses of Parliament. So this is not a big issue. Uh, and uh, this guy, uh, the, the question to my mind is, this police officer has some questions to answer. First of all, the raid in 2008 broke parliamentary privilege. What was that about? That was about that was a raid on Damien Green's parliamentary office on the basis that some uh, information had been leaked uh, from the Home Office, and the question was who was responsible for it. And so they raided parliamentary offices. This was constitutionally unprecedented at the time. This was under Blair, right? 
Uh, it would have been under no Brown uh, Blair Brown what, during that during that changeover. Yeah. So so two thousand and eight and uh, was nine years ago. Nine years ago. So why is this policeman saying this now? It clearly wasn't enough to be considered as a sex crime or even a misdemeanor in two thousand and eight. So he said nothing then. So either he covered up. For if it's serious enough, if it's child pornography, which he hasn't specified what type it is, either he covered up in 2008 or there's a conspiracy going on here of some kind because uh, he's chosen now to release this information just at the height of this hysteria. So what's this all about, Patrick? This, we believe, is about – and the more I look at this, the more I'm convinced there's two key you, things. You don't think there's a coup going on? No, there's two key things that are going on at the moment that, that they want to distract people from. The first is Heath. Mike Veal's uh, Heath investigation. Mike Veal is, was, is the chief constable of uh, uh, Wiltshire Police, and he, run, he ran an investigation into allegations of uh, paedophilia against Edward Heath. For, uh, former British Prime former Minister. Former British Prime Minister. And uh, that initial report uh, came out. And lots of people were extremely concerned about the fact that that investigation even happened in the first place. Uh, he was heavily attacked. Private Eye heavily attacked him uh, in the last couple of weeks. Oh, Private Eye! They, they, yeah, they they, well, they attacked one of ours as we well. We might this be week. talking. We might be talking about that <laughs> later on. Yeah, I think so, we will. So, yeah. uh, and and actually, the the Private Eye attack on Mike Veal uh, was really despicable because they were specifically attacking uh, Mike Veal's uh, the the, the question about whether uh, Edward Heath was involved in ritualistic abuse or not uh, and uh, the Mike, the the attack in private eye uh, was attacking Mike Veal. it was also attacking a number of people that were that are campaigning on this issue of ritualistic abuse uh, and one of the things that they focused on was the reigns list uh, and this is a, a list of uh, high level uh, establishment people who may have been involved with ritualistic abuse of children in the past. Uh, and uh, of course, what Private Eye didn't mention uh, in their, uh, expo- in their uh, what's the hit piece, let's call it, uh, was the two Private Eye employees are mentioned on the RINs list. So they did not uh, uh, acknowledge that in their hit piece on this issue. So, you know, what, what was their reason for... For, for writing this piece in the first place. Anyway, Edward Heath, uh, that investigation has, I believe, come uh, very, very close to pulling the lid off the true scale of sexual impropriety within the House of Commons. Um, and so this nonsense that we're seeing in the press at the moment is to cover that up. But who was the first scalp? The first scalp on this was Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary. Um, and... Uh, well, the other issue that they are absolutely determined to cover up is this issue of uh, EU military unification. And, and so the question is, why, why are they determined to cover this up now? Because it's not supposed to be discussed in public until it's already a done deal, and it's not a, it's not fully completed yet, or because of the timing of the fake Brexit uh, deception? Why, why, why are they panicking about? Military integration. Because why would we? Why would Britain be involved in helping the EU integrate their military when we're supposed to be 
removing ourselves from the European Union. Ah, I see. So, right. Why, so the political the political juggernaut's going in one direction, but underneath the reality of uh, towards Europe is going in another. Uh, absolutely, right? absolutely. And they do not want this. The, the Brexit has the potential to come off the, to, to bring the whole government down at this point. If if people understand the implications of this. Now, the implications of this are not just about Brexit, of course, because what we're talking about is the unification of uh, national militaries in the European Union into one uh, command and control structure. Uh, And uh, as I've been trying to make the point for quite a long time now, every two minutes you look around and Jens Stoltenberg from NATO, the Secretary General of NATO, and Federica Mogherini, the High Representative of the European Union, are together tongues down each other's throats, I joke, from time to time. Uh, They're together all the time. They are making plans for how the EU and NATO are going to work together in the future. Uh, And for anybody that's of an anti-war mind, this should be of particular concern because what we end up having is uh, the EU being a consolidated military force which can be deployed in interventionist wars it's not individual nations now. It's one command. It's only one organization that has to be convinced. National governments would have no say in whether or not we bomb Syria or Libya or Iraq. Yeah. Well, it's it, just, just the EU making a decision, it, right? It, yeah, okay. So so you think about the implications of that, that if you've got... It's world-changing. It's world-changing, right? So this is this is one of those world-changing events that you're talking about, Patrick. So, so this is on par, if you think about these... these Look like frivolous little sext, sexting scandals, right? If you think about uh, in British history, like the Perfumo affair, or you think about the Heath Heathgate at the time when the European Pact, you know, Britain was signed into the European Union, uh, and the blackmail of Ed Heath for all his proclivities and activities, which a lot of journalists and writers and investigators have said this is a likelihood. Uh, this is why he was put in these compromising positions to make sure that he would go along with the program with Europe. And uh, Leon Britton and these other names have been thrown into that similar sort of plot line. Uh, so it is kind of military integration is huge. You know, I was doing research on sanctions against Syria. And I noticed something <laughs> that the EU is, it has put the sanctions against Syria yes. with the United States. So there's only one point of contact for Washington, which is Brussels didn't have to individually uh, run this by the electorate in, in every single country of the 20-odd member states of the European Union. Nice and easy, simple. And this will include bases around the world, by the way. Yes. This will include bases in Asia, bases in Australia, bases in Africa, bases in South America, bases all over the Middle East. That's what a, a, a European integrated military will mean because they're already there, Mike. The EU is already funding development projects all over the world. They already have outposts in all of these places. And so it would require that they have a military presence as well. And that will be a budget, Mike, that is much greater than the sum total of the aggregate of all the current European military budgets and much greater than 2% NATO contribution, Mike. So, so Much bigger than the 2% current NATO contributions of NATO member states. We're talking about fourfold well, well that, that's right, because if you remember back to March, April time when, when Donald Trump was over uh, inaugurating the new NATO headquarters in Brussels, by the way, uh, if you remember, he was complaining about how many, in particular, European uh, nations, NATO nations, were not making their proper contribution 
of 2% to the defence budgets. They were not spending 2%. He was complaining about that. Once this is brought in under the EU umbrella, uh, they uh, it then becomes obligatory. Uh, it's not their decision anymore. And the other point to make here is that um, aside from the issue of uh, prosecuting wars abroad, there's the question of what does this do for the European Union itself? Now, there are many people that uh, view the possibility that Britain would get out of the European Union sufficient. But is that sufficient of what you have? Uh, you know, let's say Brexit does happen. It isn't going to, but let's say it were to happen. Uh, is that sufficient that Britain is outside that? Is Britain still comfortable with a federalized European Union sitting on its doorstep? So that that's the big, actually, that's the big point of all this, Mike, is that <clears throat> this is a prelude. European military integration is a prelude to, it's a feature of a federalized Europe. It's a a feature of a European super state. It's it's as significant as actually the formation of the embryonic European Union, the the one we have now, the fiat um, European uh, super state, the fiat democracy, the non-democracy. So this is step towards a fully federalized Europe. So, and, and, and I believe Britain would be in that federal Europe. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, so all this talk about Brexit right now is actually helping to accelerate the federalization of Europe. It's created a nice smokescreen, hasn't it? So two things were announced two weeks ago. How many British newspapers mentioned this? I would think the big fat zero is the answer to that. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker released his timetable for 2018 for the European Commission. And on that, uh, he listed a deeper and fairer economic and monetary union, completing the economic and monetary union, completing the banking union. This is all for 2018. And the creation of a permanent and accountable European Minister of Economy and Finance. That's a European uh, treasury right there. Donald Tusk, the day before, had announced his intention to have an EU treasury up and running by June 2018. Treasury, defence. This is federal European Union being built in front of our eyes. When Juncker said a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and and, uh, Boris Johnson said he agreed absolutely that Brexit gave the EU the opportunity for a renaissance. This is what they're talking about. And this is Boris's true colors, right? Right. And the point is that Brexit is being used as the driver for all this stuff. That's why David Cameron held the referendum. That's why everybody said he's crazy holding a referendum. And and for for all these people who who can't fathom this, why was Boris Johnson an ardent remainer, Mike, only a month before Months, months, two months before something like that, the referendum. How, how do you just change your position? Well, on- you change your position when you're uh, controlled opposition, when you're controlling the opposition. When he was the man put in place to control the opposition. So anyone out there who thinks that Boris is a Brexiter, if for real, um, <laughs> are you serious? Right. So, <laughs> so, so if you if you want to know why all this. Absolute nonsense is in the the media at the moment. Uh, this these non-events, it's to cover up those two things. That's my my view. 
Well, I, th- I think we're going to be looking at that. Uh, we'll be talking about that tomorrow on the UK Column Live, uh, which will be streaming out at ukcolumn.org and also on their YouTube channel on the live stream. That'll be 1 p.m. UK time. Uh, do tune in for that. We're also going to have a, couple, a special guest on as well. Uh, we're going to talk about the Saudi coup, which I'm going to talk about next, Mike. And uh, by the way, uh, there's a speaking of the Saudi coup, there's a documentary up for the Sunday screening today on the website, which is called The Saudi Royal Family. It's kind of a mainstream look at the Saudi Royal Family. This, this shot was shot in 2009, released in 2010. It's got a lot of mainstream characters in it, but it gives you a good detailed background of uh, who this family is, where they sit in the sort of the orthodox uh, uh, me- media space and what we know about them. And it's, that's, it's a good background for what we're going to talk about right now. And I, some amazing things happened today. And, of course, you wouldn't read it in the British press. Uh, but the uh, prime minister of Lebanon resigned uh, in the last 24 hours. Hariri resigned. And why is this significant? Well, he did it when he was in Saudi Arabia. And so the question is, why and how and why why now? And uh, so he is uh, the son of Rafiq Hariri, uh, the uh, assassinated uh, former uh, Lebanese leader uh, who was killed in a bomb in 2005. And that sort of kicked a little realignment of Middle East politics at the time. Now, what's going on? And then we find out just after that, Mike, uh, so, by the way, Hariri says that uh, there was an assassination plot uh, to kill him, and the Lebanese army just came out a few minutes before the show and said, uh, leader of the Lebanese army spokesperson said, there's no assassination plot uh, about Prime Minister Hariri resigning. It's not going to happen. Uh, so they said Sada Hariri stepped down because he said he feared for his life. This Lebanese army says there's nothing in it. So there's definitely a power thing going on. This leads back to Riyadh. Now, there's been a lot of trips by the United States uh, leadership, the president, secretary of state, spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. There's a purge that just happened, Mike, and it's absolutely incredible. Uh, so we have the uh, arrest of some major figures in Saudi Arabia. We're talking about billionaires. And what does this mean? Why has this happened now? And let's look at the list here. It's unbelievable. The first person on the list, Mike, is uh, Walid bin Talal, uh, who is a billionaire owner of the Kingdom Holding Group, also a major shareholder of Citibank and Citigroup. This guy's a major player in everything. Um, he was just in the press recently saying uh, he doesn't believe in Bitcoin, and it's a big scam. It's probably because he didn't invest in it to begin with, so he's a bit upset. But uh, he was on there, and it's just one after another, Prince Turkey bin Abdullah, former governor of Riyadh, uh, and uh, Saleh Kamal, another billionaire. There's about 14 people here, high-profile arrests, director of Saudi Airlines. So there's definitely a power struggle going on here. So this is a major purge. This is palace intrigue. Uh, this is backstabbing going on. Uh, this is the new crown prince, uh, Mohammed uh, bin Salman, looks to be wanting to seize power and seize control of the country. Uh, the question is, who's who's behind him? And the question is, what's going to happen to these other sort of dissident members of the family? And I might add, Mike, the only reason this royal family has survived this long in Saudi Arabia is because they haven't plunged knives in each other's backs. And their survival pretty much depends on them staying together because this is a minority 
sect uh, who's using radical theology to control uh, a mostly tribal uh, population in their country, and which is run by mostly imported labor. So it's it's a tedious uh, civilization hanging by threads and needles, basically. And meanwhile, they've waged a unwinnable war that's more almost bankrupted the country next door in Yemen. And so we have this power grab going on right now. And this is the, Mohammed bin Salman has also announced recently that he wants to uh, promote a moderate version of Islam. I mean, this is unbelievable for Saudi Arabia. So there's definitely something going on here. Who's pressuring him? How genuine is it? I think we had the announcement before that that women are going to be allowed to drive, although no one's seen many women driving since that in Saudi Arabia. That might take a while. <laughs> but uh, so something's serious is going on here. Uh, we've got some good analysis, uh, which has come up. And by the way, I think Andrew Karibko, uh, who's with Sputnik Radio, he's been on the show a few times. He's actually predicted this, um, I, I would say, as early as the summer. He pretty much sketched this out. And uh, we also hear news like Trump urging the IPO for Aramco. Lebanese Prime Minister resigns and uh, Saudi intercepts a missile. I haven't looked into that story yet. Cabinet reshuffle. Uh, Anti-graft committee arrested for money laundering. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, 30 ministers ar- arrested for corruption. This is huge. Mm. Um, this is huge. So something's going to come out of this. And it's going to be something geopolitical. Now, does this mean, Mike, and this is the question, and hopefully we'll explore this tomorrow, um, does this mean that Saudi is going to be more open in its relationship with Israel as their best buddy uh, in the region? This is the question. Uh, so a good commentator, I'm going to play a clip. This is uh, from Press TV. This is uh, Lebanese journalist uh, Marwa Osman here, and uh, this is her basic analysis of what's going on uh, in the kingdom. And uh, we're going to play this clip right now. Let's listen to what Marwa says, what she thinks happening uh, with, with Saad Hariri and also uh, his relationship with Saudi Arabia. He's very pro-Saudi. Uh, this is well known. And also this has, the Hezbollah issue it is boiling to the surface in Lebanon. Maybe this has a lot to do with it. Let's listen to Marwa. If you, if, look, if you go back to what Said Hassan Nasrullah was saying on the ninth day of Muharram, he specifically told us all that we are awaiting for the step or plan B to be taken by the puppets of U.S. and Israel in the region, which is uh, Saudi Arabia. This is not no longer a secret. And th- here we are. Said Hassan Nasrullah specifically said that after the liberation of, of, da- of uh, uh, Iraqi uh, uh, soil from Daesh, which happened exactly yesterday, fully liberated, and after the liberation of Syrian soil as well, which we are in the moments of actually uh, announcing it, because the Syrian Arab army is about to take uh, uh, Al-Bukamal alongside Hezbollah. So there you go. Daesh is terminally eradicated, uh, terminated from Syrian and Iraqi soil, which means that the project, the Israeli Zionist U.S. funded and promoted project for the Middle East has finally collapsed. So now everyone is paranoid. This plan is a plan that could tell us how much uh, uh, bankrupt 
the people in the region are because they have lost the money they have invested. They have lost the political uh, will to continue because basically they have nothing to bargain on, whether on uh, uh, the front line or in politics. And they have seen the growth of Iran and its friends in the region, which they don't like at all. And they have been losing the war in Yemen as well, despite the criminal behavior they have been doing against the Yemeni people. So all of these are actually... Um, variables that uh, play a new, uh, uh, if you will, some sort of a threat against this project, therefore against this political stance in the Middle East, making them choose any sort of, of option that would uh, uh, maybe uh, retake the, the security or the political peace uh, in the Middle East, especially in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and uh, Iran for that matter. So it's obviously that because of these victories, we are seeing this. But it's a matter of question now whether are we still going to see our former prime minister in Lebanon or that is that it for him? Where is he now? What was he thinking when he went? Why did he go? Because he was summoned back to Saudi Arabia within one week, especially after meeting with Mr. Ali Akbar Wilayati, who is the senior advisor of Said Ali Khamenei. So was he there to get punished? Was he summoned to get punished because of this meeting? Because they already knew that he has it. Wow, so that's what's going on in the kingdom uh, and in Lebanon. So could this be a preparation for a coup in, in Lebanon later? It's difficult to say. It doesn't look like it. Uh, he's been caught up in a major corruption scandal. The oil, the Saudi oil company, the Enron of Saudi Arabia, Ogre Oil, uh, went bust. And I think there's quite a few people that are being you know, pulled up for, for this, basically. Took the money and ran. So uh, here's a question for you, Patrick, because uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm right in saying this, but the people that have been arrested uh, are mainly people with interests, Western-looking interests. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, pretty, uh, very so, much so. So we should remember, of course, that King Solomon was uh, was in Russia just a few weeks ago. He uh, was, he was. And uh, expressing a desire to have closer ties with the Russians. Uh, and so, so, and and they 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 also had a talk about uh, finalizing a missile defense deal uh, with the Russians. So, as well. so my question—I don't know the answer to this—but my question is: uh, uh, Are these arrests uh, arrests of people who perhaps would not have been terribly keen to see that that policy pursued? Or um, if if those are people like Bintel, we're talking about Citigroup, right. Citibank, Bintelau. Look, the dollar as the reserve currency. The majority of oil transactions. Uh, done in U.S. dollars, and in the last few weeks, we've also seen reports of Chinese uh, oil contracts being offered to Saudi Arabia in Juan. Right. We're seeing uh, inter- a swift arrival to the U.S. SWIFT interbank payment system. We're clearing transactions between rubles and Juan between China and Russia. Okay, so are we looking at uh, uh, people exploring other options in the global, because let, let's face it, Mike, if you bought Chinese currency five years ago and you kept it in the bank, you just made a whole lot of money in the last two years. Yeah. So it's a good investment. So Saudi needs to diversify its portfolio. Guess what, Mike? The dollar's not going anywhere. No, it's going down. It's, it, it's, it, it, <laughs> it's certainly going the, somewhere. <laughs> exactly. The, 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 one of the U.S.'s only get-out-of-jail possibilities is to devalue the dollar. 
in order to somehow balance out some of the inequities in the, the, the this game of globalization. Plus, we have th- then the counter punch of that is a rise in interest rates, mm-hmm. which we're hearing more talk about that. I doubt this is going to happen before Christmas, but it's being talked about again. So the threats there, basically. So th- all these threats and pressures on the market are going to create moves and moves to, to the exit doors normally when it comes to big money. Is that what we're looking at here? Are we looking at a flight from the dollar into other capital? Uh, That's something that the that uh, those behind the dollar would be pretty unwilling to accept. Uh, and uh, perhaps you start to see internal strife in countries that are looking in that direction at that point. So it is an amazing story. We, we link to the moon, moon of Alabama, which is a good website uh, on a lot of these issues. We've linked to the moon of Alabama on this issue on the show page uh, with regards to the Saudi purge, Night of the Long Knives. And uh, as we said, Caribco pretty much predicted this uh, most recently in October. But Andrew called this, Andrew Kribko called this a deep state war in Saudi Arabia. And it, th- th- there is, you know, you, you can look at it in, in deep state terms, not just in U.S. internationalist deep state terms, but Saudi Arabia itself uh, has a, a deep state of its own. Mm. Uh, and most all countries do, in fact, uh, have this phenomenon too. So these are the interests that move uh, move institutions that move money uh, that move politics as well that move countries and so this is what's happening now i don't know where this is going to end up we'll find out though i'm sure it's going to take shape pretty quick though uh, we're going to find out in fact you know in this global media hyper environment mike we tend to find out which direction it's if you know where to look if you, for information you'll know which way this is going in the next couple of days of course we'll know that but the media the mainstream media will take it a little longer uh, to figure out what <laughs> they'll point us in the wrong direction for like a month or something. This is what they normally do. And meanwhile, we'll be sitting here in December saying, yeah, we were right. Yeah. Which we, um, we I don't, I take no pleasure in, in saying that over and over again, but that's always seems to be the case. So those who do listen to the show and watch the UK column uh, are, are normally ahead of the curve on most big issues because of that very reason. So let's, uh, Look at this other story, and uh, oh, by the way, so Gordon Brown comes out, Mike. Did you see this? Gordon Brown comes out on the BBC, and he says, he admits the UK was misled over weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's about (laughs) better late than never, right? Mail in the homework. How many years later is this? What, 15 years later? Something like that. 15 years later, Gordon Brown admits... So, so if they're going to arrest all these people in Saudi, Mike, this is my question. Why don't we, maybe we can arrest Tony Blair, George Bush, Jack Straw, Lord Goldsmith, Obama. Why not throw Obama, Hillary, John Kerry, McCain, Adam Kinzinger, Evan McMullen, throw them all in there and all the other rats in Washington. Why don't we just have a massive arrests? Saudis are doing it, right? They're, they're a theocratic dictatorship and they can even manage to arrest 30 people, even if it's for partisan power struggle reasons, at least it's some, you know, they're doing some anti-corruption cleaning house when Saudi's cleaning house for corruption, Mike, whether it's legitimate or not, you know, you have to ask yourself, what are we doing over here in the West? Actually, what exactly are we doing? Touching each other's knees, Patrick, touching each other's knees and George Soros's fund manager, Howie Rubin. Uh, a bunch of women came out and accused him of um, ritualistic abuse and uh, whatever in his dungeon. 
he paid them, of course. That's another story. But that that's what's going on in the West. Knee touching, uh, God, porn, dungeons. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So so why not why don't we have those arrests? We'd love to see it. Donna Brazil. Donna Brazil, former chair of the DNC, Democratic National Committee, interim chair. She t- took over from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And uh, she basically put her book out that basically says that the Hillary Clinton had control of the Democratic Party and the finances. Her campaign was handed control of the entire party. They completely shafted Bernie Sanders uh, from the from the beginning. And so that comes out. But, of course, she says and the Russians hacked the election. And that's what uh, what what compelled her to come out and deal with this great crisis. So she she still holds the Russian line, but that's huge uh, because it shows that actually the Russians didn't meddle with the U.S. election. The biggest meddler of the last election had to be Hillary Clinton, uh, who who also funded the Christopher Steele dossier and fund she did, and she still lost. <laughs> so show you how popular she was. That's really that's the saddest part of the whole story, Mike, is that she could she couldn't even win after rigging the whole U.S. electoral system and the superdelegates. Wow. I mean, as if as if there's how can you lose? You've got control over the party. You've got the superdelegate safety valve. uh, You've got fake dossiers coming in the right moment, right before the election. It's amazing. Why? How come she couldn't win? It's incredible. So here's here's an interesting story, and I'm going to talk about Iraq in a minute. Um, the Intercept, the Intercept, Glenn Greenwald's basically they've been sitting on NSA Snowden documents for a few years now. One of the ones they sat on uh, had to do with Syria, and it basically it's a it's a document here. This is from Mint Press. Uh, this is published by we're a bit. This was last week, but this is Whitney Webb at uh, Mint Press News. And it's basically a document here from, from the PRISM files that shows that uh, a Saudi Prince Salman bin Sultan uh, directed opposition to light up Damascus and flatten the airport, among other things, with uh, 120 tons of explosives. Why is this important? This, well, this, this file is dated 2013, Mike. Right. So why did the intercept sit on this? Uh, why did Glenn Greenwald sit on this? I guess it wasn't important. Right. I guess it wasn't important, and uh, it's it. It only came out now. Does that not uh, does that not imply controlled opposition? Well, it sort of does. It sort of does imply that. Um, well, you're going to have a lot of explaining to the Syrian people of why you didn't put this information out because that could have saved lives mm. because this could have altered the narrative of the mainstream narrative, the bogus, fabricated, fake narrative about the Syrian so-called civil war, which has been r- ramped up and nonstop, really, for, since 2012. This could have der- helped derail that. So uh, I'm, I'm, ex- I would, I'm hoping there's going to be a heartfelt op-ed by Glenn Greenwald explaining exactly what happened here. Maybe he's already put it out, and I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I'd like to know. I really would. And the Guardian probably had access to this as well. It, it could have been within that investigation. So maybe some Guardian people, whoever's in working on the Snowden files at yeah. the time, yeah. maybe they knew. So what? So this is an interesting question, Mike. We have some questions maybe for the Guardian, uh, for Glenn Greenwald, who I respect very much. And I, I like a lot of his commentary and work, and he's done some great work. But this is kind of a big deal. 
And uh, this, this shows you a lot here, and I'd like to know why. Really would like to know why. 